Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. Sit up with me, John Jennings. John is the president and chief strategist of St. Louis Trust and Family Office a $15 billion wealth management firm. He's also an adjunct professor at Washington University, a Forbes contributor and author of The Interesting Fact of the Day blog. And he's the author of The Uncertainty Solution, which we're going to get into. But before we went live, we were just talking how small the world is. I met you yeah. through YPO Connections. And earlier today, I had a recording with somebody else who was in St. Louis who had breakfast with you this morning. And it's just it crazy. You know, we had this like hour and 45 minute breakfast, which is mm -hmm. pretty long, but we were just like really, in, you know, we met each other before, but we were really getting to know each other, having a great conversation. And he's like, well, I got to go because in like 45 minutes, I have this podcast. I'm like, oh, I've been on a lot of podcasts lately promoting my book. What podcast are you on? And he's like, oh yeah, it's with Brian Adams. I'm like, okay, that's probably a pretty common name. <laughs> <laughs> but Excelsior Group. And he's like, that's it. <laughs> I'm like, so wild. Wow. So wild. The world gets pretty small pretty quick. Well, and as you know, reading the book, I have a section of my book on this about how the highly improbable happens all the time. And yeah. one way to look at this, which is kind of the more fun way is, wow, that was a blip in the matrix, right? We're, we're like all living in a matrix being ruled by artificial intelli intelligence. Or it's like me and you and Rich who I had breakfast with we should probably keep in touch and email each other every day or, or like join a club or whatever. But really probably the way to look at it is, is something called Littlewood's Law of Miracles. So it was this economist that said, if a miracle is a one in one million occurrence that, and I think this is probably a little high, but he says you have about 30,000 things that you see or experience in a day. So that's basically every second for 16 hours of being awake. So it's I think it's probably a little less than that. But but if you do 30,000 experiences a day times 30 days, you're close to a million. 
And even if it's 15,000, you're at like 500,000. So, so really what he's saying is that you're going to experience the highly improbable, a miracle about once a month. And the only thing that's surprising, and this is kind of paraphrasing Aristotle, is that when these things happen, we're surprised. That being said, I was like, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> well, I think that you and I are both huge sports fans, big yeah. hockey fans. This adage and these cliches that my dad talked about when I was a kid, I thought were silly and didn't make sense. They're all true. I mean, on some level, like you create your own luck there, right? I mean, if you and I are both putting ourselves out there in the world, you write yeah. this book, I've got this podcast. I respond to a posting you put on YPO Connect. I got connected with Rich through a mutual friend. Like on, on some level, you're creating these opportunities to interact, right? Yeah. And like between me and Rich, we all work in wealth management and you're, you're right. Like you don't create your own luck or these sort of connections just sitting in your office all day. It's kind of like that, that book, Never Eat Alone by Keith Fazari, I think is his last name. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm a fan of the, of that term. I don't remember the author, but I do live by that. I try to live by that. So what I always ask people that come on the show that have a book, because <laughs> I know it's a huge pain yeah. and a lot of heartburn or whatever other you want, cliche you want to throw at it. But like, what was the motivation here? What, yeah. what got you to, to do this? Yeah, a few things. So I think number one, I, I saw I saw like some sort of survey like a year or two ago that said that like something like 60 or 70 percent of people think they have a book in them. And I, I think that's probably right. I mean, whether it's a memoir, a work of fiction or poetry or like mine, which is, I found out is called prescriptive nonfiction, by the way. So, I mean, that's part of it, but really has motivated, I wanted to spread what I refer to as truth and transparency around the investment management or wealth management industry. And, and the book's not exactly just about investing, but, but it, I wanted to help people have less worry and anxiety about the uncertainty of the world and the investing world. But partially, I think the, the financial services industry either knowingly or unknowingly, is, is feeding false certainty. <laughs> and I don't think that's going to make people better investors. So that was really my goal is, is to spread truth and transparency and help people feel better, <laughs> have less worry, and hopefully have more money. I'm, my, my big hope is that somebody reads my book, is a better consumer of investment advice, and has more money in 20 years. Yeah, one of the things that I reflected on while reading the book was one... <laughs> Wall Street, and we say that in this like huge umbrella term, but yeah. it really is a marketing machine at the end of the day. I mean, it's really good at creating up really is. creative products that are that are novel and interesting mm -hmm. and pushing that through to retail channels, right? I mean, ultimately, that's kind of like what the product is. And I think oftentimes people just assume, oh, these are the smartest guys in the world. They must know what they're doing. Yeah. No, they're just, I mean, sure, they are, some of them, is, but generally speaking, like they're really good at taking retail dollars into their products. Absolutely. That is, that is what they're set up to do. And again, like I, I look at the financial services industry, like largely good people, a lot of misaligned incentives and, and incentives matter. And, you know, I was at Arthur Anderson's. I, I started out practicing estate planning and tax law. Then I was at, I was at Arthur, spent less than a year at a bank in the, in the trust area. Then I was at Arthur Anderson and Arthur Anderson for people that are young enough, they don't know what that is. So there's a big, there's the big four accounting firms. It was the big five. And had maybe the best name of the five in, in terms of reputation. And really what happened was Anderson shifted. And I've talked to partners that were there a lot longer than me, where they focused, it used to be all about, or mostly about the clients. And then Anderson Consulting, which renamed itself as Accenture, broke away. And it was a big hit of, to revenue of Anderson. And Anderson started promoting with their partners, and, the, and I was a manager, 
It's all about, we need more profitability. We need to replace this lost revenue. And one of my roles was, was basically selling tax shelters. It was really fun and, and investments. But I saw this culture shift. And I think part of the reason why Anderson went under, again, talking to a lot of former Anderson people, was the incentives had shifted. And they had issues with WorldCom and some other companies and then Enron where they wouldn't stand up and say no to their clients because there was so much incentive on profitability and growth. So when we started our company, we said, we're just not going to do that. We're not going to incentivize anybody, anybody based on profitability or, or growth in the entire company. We, like, there's something called KPIs, key performance in, indicators. Like we don't have it. And that really comes out of my, my experience and others. A few of us came from Anderson to start our company. That, that was really part of that experience. Yeah. I mean, if you just look at what happened in 08 and the investment banks that were involved and how they all pivoted from true partnership private models to being publicly traded entities, that had a big impact Huge. on how they thought about conducting business. And even now, one of the weirdest things that I think has happened that nobody really talks about is these big, huge private equity firms are now publicly traded companies. I just yeah. think that's kind of a bizarre thing. Yeah, you can invest in Apollo and Blackstone and KKR. And yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty fascinating. And I'll tell you, so like we've had these bank failures. We had Signature Valley Bank failed, but then right on its heels just a few days later was Signature Bank of New York. And we actually have a, some client money at Signature Bank for various reasons. But one thing that was unique about their compensation model for their bankers is they compensated their private bankers mainly on deposits, which is unusual. So usually it's based on loans or revenues or something else. And the reason is, is they, they said getting people to deposit money with you is hard. Making loans is actually easier because people want money. So they, they, they incentivize based on deposits. Well, as part of that, they did some unusual things. Like they, they would take cannabis money, which was unusual for a federally chartered bank. And they took a lot of crypto money, which most banks didn't want to do. And so the reason Signature Bank went under is because another bank, Silvergate, that was doing a lot of crypto, they went under, but they were very different. They were doing loans to crypto firms, taking crypto as collateral. But there was this thought that if crypto banks are going other, under, this was the other big crypto bank, only taking deposits. And so that, that incentive of we're going to take money from wherever, we're not going to care where the money comes from, we just want deposits, caused them to grow hugely and very quickly. They were a very fast growing bank, but it ultimately led to their demise. So like incentives matter. And a lot of the incentives in the wealth management industry aren't always in the client's best interest. So pivot back to the book, and I completely agree with you. One of the adages that an old Wall Street buddy of mine, you worked at a big hedge fund in New York for a very long time, always says is people can take bad news, they can take good news, but they can't take no news. And this really goes yeah. to your concept yeah. of uncertainty, how to address it, and really this whole like things that you can control and influence and things that you can't, cannot. Yeah. And so I'd love to have you kind of unpack. You've had a great diagram, which we're audio only, so I'm not going to really reference much, but it does a really nice job of laying this out. And I think it's really helpful as an investor, at least how I interpret it. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So we have this, this diagram we use with, with clients that looks like a target. And that concept is you focus on the, the bullseye. And the bullseye are things that you can control, which are, are basically can control what fees you pay. And then you can control your own behavior. So that's by far the most important. If you get the fees and behavior right, 
you're likely almost certain to be successful in your, your investing. Um, then there's things that you can influence, but can't control. So the risk in your portfolio, you can influence like in general, what's more or less risky, but not exactly, but you can be like ish and also taxes. You can invest in a more or less tax efficient way, but some tax laws change and sometimes you need to do things at taxes. So you focus on what you can control and then influence and don't have total control over. But then there's all the things you don't have control over, like whether the debt ceiling is going to be raised in time. <laughs> the, the amount of debt in this, this country, geopolitical events, the path of interest rates and inflation, what the Fed's going to do, what the stock market's going to do, technological innovations, like none of those things do we have control over. And so many of those are unknowable and unpredictable. But yet that's what so many people, investors or investment professionals, spend their time on. And again, it's it's interesting. It doesn't mean that you just put your head in the sand and you're ignorant, but you need to focus the center of the bullseye, then one layer out, and then try to try not to pay too much attention to the, the outside ring. And to, to dovetail with an earlier part of our conversation, what Wall Street's really good at is bringing in super smart people to prognosticate about these things that neither you nor they have control over. And you can spend right. a huge amount of time. You can spend all of your time. And you reference this in the book. I want to hear about your pivot, but you could crush yourself reading the New York Times, The Economist, The Wall mm -hmm. Street Journal, all of the client notes that come out from these wirehouses. You could spend your whole day reading these things and 99% of it, you have no leverage over it. Uh, and so yes. it, it, it can just, it can, it can consume you in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it, and it won't tell you what the stock market's going to do because I used to do that. I used to kind of start my book talking about how much information I used to consume on a daily basis. And it didn't get me anywhere. I would have been better served and I'm better served now. I mean, I keep abreast of what's going on. I mean, but there's no need to know or try to know everything that's going on because even if you did, like even if somebody gave you a crystal ball, so I just, I just published an article in Forbes yesterday. So this is, we're, we're recording this on May 19th. So on May 18th, I published a, an article in Forbes about the debt ceiling, but make the point, like if you woke up on January 1st of 1990, and for some reason you had a crystal ball and, and it, the crystal ball told you things like the U.S. is about to enter a recession and we're going to have a, this, this horrible terrorist attack. And we're going to have this huge bubble in the stock market that's going to burst with the, the dot coms. And we're going to have the financial crisis and we're going to have COVID and you know, the attack in Ukraine and, and the peaceful transfer of, of power in the U.S. like almost doesn't happen. The capital is like attacked by an insurrection. Like, I think we would all be like, okay, I shouldn't be investing. But $1,000 invested on January 1st, 1990, as of four days ago, was worth $2,253. So a two or $22,000. 253. So, so basically it's a, a 2,253% return. Holy cow, right? So I think that the, even if you knew the future, it doesn't tell you what's going to happen. On March 23rd, the bottom of the market during COVID, like we had only had our thousands COVID death. If somebody had said, hey, GDP is going to drop 9% this quarter and unemployment's about to spike to 14.7%. And we're going to have worldwide over the next three years, 6 million deaths. Again, like that news wouldn't have helped you because the stock market bottomed that day and gained 70% through the rest of the year. Crazy. It's crazy. And that really goes to this idea of these mental models that you have that are incredible as you break down each chapter. 
I've picked a couple of them that I think are you know, more applicable for me and my audience. I want to hop around a little bit, but this is a good segue into one of them, which is stock market is not the economy. Yeah. Yeah. I would say for anybody that's listening, and if you don't want to read the book, I, I think the most important mental model is that the stock market is not the economy because economic growth in the US has a zero correlation to what the stock market does in, in real time. So you'd love to have the real world or the economy tell you what the stock market's going to do because we, we are better able to sort of know what's going on in the real world, right? But it's flip. The, the stock market predicts, not perfectly, but an ish with a, about a 60% correlation. It, it predicts what's going to happen in the economy. So what that means is whatever news is happening or going on or whatever economic indicator you're looking at, it doesn't tell you what's going to happen in the stock market. The stock market turns in advance, both up and down, usually before what happens in the real world. We saw this in 08, 09. Again, the bottom, March 9th, 2009. Like the bad news was still bad. It was still coming. People couldn't see how we were going to possibly recover from this. On March 9th, there were still people saying the market's going to be down another 50%. We're heading into depression. And a lot of the news was still really bad, but that's when the market turned. So you cannot look, I'll just repeat again, you cannot look at what's going on in the economy or what's going on in the news to tell you what's going on in the stock market. So is the takeaway then to just, to the extent that you can stay invested, stay long-term. And I think you have a great term, like, or I heard this somewhere that, Women are better mm. stock investors than men because yeah. they don't try to, they don't think that they, men think they can manipulate the market. They think they have some kind of leverage or power over decisions and they're well-informed, whereas women just don't trade as often and their yeah. performance is much better. It's, it's like, if you're a man, trade like a woman. If you're a woman, trade like a dead person. Yeah, that's, 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 the, that's, one of the, that's a message <laughs> in my book. So yeah, it was yeah. this amazing study. It's one of my favorite investment studies I've ever read. And I've read a lot. It's called Boys Will Be Boys uh, and something about studying gender differences in investing. And somehow these academics got a discount brokerage firm that is unnamed in the study to give them 35,000 accounts and data for 10 years. And they found that the single women were the best performers, dragged down, next was married women, then, then married men, and then in the rear was single males. And they were like, why is that? And what they found is both genders, regardless of marital status, were equally bad at investing. <laughs> so on average, every time they made a trade, they what they sold did better than what they bought. And so they found that the more you trade, the worse you are. If every, every trade on average costs you money, trading less does better. So they found that the women traded 45% less than the men. So they outperformed and outperformed handily. And then what's interesting is if the women had less confidence that's why they traded less. So study after study has shown that men are more overconfident than women when it comes to financial and investment things. I mean, women were overconfident too, just not as much as the men. And, and women have their areas of, of life where they, in general, are more overconfident than men. So it's not, as a species, we're overconfident. It just varies by area. And then what you're referring to is also this, this fidelity study that was internal. It was reported on. No one's you know, seen it, but that their highest performing accounts over a 10-year period they found were those of dead people and locked accounts. So people that had you know, switched jobs and moved their 401k. And this goes right along with other studies. There was a study of pension plans. These are professional investors. They have staff, they have consultants, everything. They found the same thing, that the funds, the investment funds they sold 
outperform the investment funds they bought, again, on average and quite handily. So even professional investors should be less active. And it doesn't mean that you never make a change to your portfolio, but your default should be, I am going to be inactive. And what I say is like sitting in your discomfort of uncertainty, if you feel like taking action in your, your portfolio, do something else. And in fact, Carl Richards, who of the Behavior Gap, great book, Behavior Gap and website, he's the, the sketch guy in the New York Times and Morningstar Advisor. I heard him on interview recently saying to do something called the overnight test. So if you think you want to make an investment decision, wait a day to implement it. Yeah, I, I like that. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. And you allude to this. And my family works with a firm that I think profile-wise is very similar to yours, has a very similar thought process. It does make sense, though, to annually or maybe semi-annually meet with your advisor. No, absolutely. Go, go through a rebalance exercise, reallocation exercise, because allocation does and rebalancing does matter in the, in the oh, long run. Absolutely. And that's, that's mainly the activity that should be taken. Or a lot of our client families, they withdraw from their portfolio to, for their living expenses to supplement their living expenses. So you, you absolutely, at least we are, we, we look at their portfolios and we have to decide what are we going to sell? How are we going to raise raise cash? Or we have clients that are adding to their portfolios. You got to decide there. So there are times that you need to, to rebalance. Absolutely. So the, the point is that you never do anything, but your default should be less activity instead of more. And I'll tell you, like being more simple rather than complex and inactive rather than active and these sort of things. Like it sounds, it sounds like really boring investing and it is, but Successful investing typically means being more boring, right? If you just picked, if you just decided to be like, okay, I'm going to be 75% in the all country world index and 25% in Vanguard total bond index or, or, or what have you. And you just looked at it once a year and rebalanced. I mean, you'd probably beat like 90% of investors out there. We had a client recently that just sold his business and he had a smaller account at a, another advisor who I respect a lot. I really respect this other advisor. And it was just like a few million dollar account. I mean, sizable, but a lot less than what they ended up getting. And for this like $2 million account, there, there were like 16 different funds. I was like, wow. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> That's a lot. But, and you also advocate for having, knowing yourself and, and doing that, that exercise and maybe having just like a fun account, right? That if you do Absolutely. need to, if you need to exercise those demons and you want to have some quote unquote play money, make an annual allocation and like go wild. And Absolutely. that's your, that's your spend account for your, for your year. Yeah. We do this all the time with clients. We, we, if somebody likes to pick stocks or they're into themes and they say, oh, you want to, I want to buy a ETF that's going to take advantage of battery technology or electric vehicles or genomics or, or whatever, or pick individual stocks or like go crazy, but let's limit it. Let's have a separate account that you control or you can put in trades with us, what, what have you. And let's keep it separate and a set amount of your portfolio. Maybe it's 1%, maybe it's 10%, whatever it is. And then it's really interesting if you performance report on it. In my experience, most of the time, it doesn't do as well as the more disciplined, more boring portfolio. And I do this myself. Like I've just gone through this with some of this banking stuff. The, the, day, the day after Signature Bank and, and Silicon Valley Bank closed, I bought shares of Schwab because it dropped you know, like 37% over the last few weeks. And we work a lot with Schwab. I know Schwab well. I'm like, I'm buying some Schwab. I bought it like $52 a share. 
Like over the next day or two, it went to like 59. I'm like, I am a genius. And then it dropped back down. It was around 52. And then recently it was like at $46 a share. And I was thinking to myself, I've violated so many rules here. So first of all, I shouldn't be buying individual stocks. Second of all, I'm totally short term. After making a nice return over two days, I was like, I'm a genius. And and now if I really knew what I was doing, if I liked it at $52 a share, I should be buying more at 46. But I didn't. I was like, okay, this is just my play account. I'm going to let Schwab ride. We'll see see what happens. But again, it was... Quite frankly, it was this really tiny amount. I'm talking like I bought a few thousand dollars. Like it, like it is, it's, it's just not a big deal. But yeah, I do it yeah. myself. And I've, I wrote a book on this, but I know to limit myself to the play account. Right. And that goes into this idea that you have about stress testing your portfolio and making it bulletproof. So would you maybe go through some of the diagnostic steps that you outlined that folks should maybe think through? in order to prevent this, you know, natural behavioral reactions that we have when things go crazy in the world or when there's this exuberance in the market? Yeah. So I'm not a big fan of taking projections. A lot of investment consultants and investment firms do projections in the future, say, here's here's what we think this type of investment will do versus that and everything, because it makes things seem too smooth. So even if they're right, even if they say okay, US stock's going to earn 8% over the next 20 years, sounds great. But it really doesn't show all the volatility that's happening. So over the last 51 years, the U.S. stock markets return about 10%. And only three of those 51 years has the stock market returned between 8 and 12%. So like, it, there's a lot more volatility. And so it's really the behavior that we should be stress testing, not even if they got the production close to right. So what we tend to do is take really good and really bad time periods and load the portfolio in like historical periods. So we'll say, how would this portfolio have done in you know, 1929, 1930, and through the malaise of the 70s and dot-com bust and the great financial crisis and COVID, but also great time periods. Say, how did it do from 1999, right? How, how did these great time periods, how did the portfolio do? And then start looking at and, and thinking about behavior. Like, what am I going to do if we have another 49% decline like we did in the dot-com bubble? or even 57% like it was from peak to trough in the financial crisis, or this really just flashed down that was so incredibly breathtakingly quick to about 34% down during, during COVID. Like, how are we going to react? So I think that's more important than, than doing a projection that's really based on bell curve statistics. So that's, that's, that's what we do to stress test client portfolios, because it's, it's really all about behavior, all about behavior. Right. If I learn nothing from this book, it's that human investors are the worst timing investors that you could ever conceive of. Sell at the absolute wrong time and buy at the absolute wrong time. Yeah. The vast majority of humans. I'll tell you, I'm reading David. I'm almost done with David Rubenstein, the the co-founder of Carlisle. He he has this book called How to Invest. And I think it's great. It's a really good book. I've learned a lot from it. I wouldn't suggest most investors pick it up to say, that's how I'm going to invest because they're extraordinary investors. And there are people like John Paulson who saw the weakness in the subprime mortgage market, had to go to banks and, and brokerages and basically created security so he could short the mortgage market and made billions of you know, dollars. And it's, it's people like that and like Mark Andreessen from Andreessen Horowitz and the, the managing partner Sequoia, a venture capital firm, and Seth Clareman, who runs one of the most successful hedge funds of all time. And these people are really able to swim against the tide. And they're just unique individuals that 
are able to do what 99.9% of other investors aren't able to do. And really, they're taking advantage of all the rest of us. <laughs> and our poor decision making is, is really how they really how they make their, their money. Well, let's dig in a little bit more on that idea, because the other part that I found incredible was the creating versus preserving yeah. wealth portion. Of it. And that really goes to the statement that you just made. Yeah. So we mainly work with families that have a hundred million and up. I mean, we have some, some below that definitely, but it, it's, it's fascinating to see the 63 client families we work with, 62 of them owned a business or were an executive at a publicly, usually CEO of a publicly traded company. Only one family, and, and this goes back you know, to the 1940s, really just saved a lot, invested well, and it's enough time. So the, the two generations ago, the, the patriarch invested a lot of money in the stock market and kept it there for 60 plus years. So everybody else owned a business and usually they started it or they were an executive at, at a company. And so if you think about it, the way you vault into tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of wealth is you're, you're very concentrated. You're, you basically have your wealth in one, one company. So you're not diversified. It's very high risk. 70% of companies don't make it to their 10th birthday. Then what you do is you put your own personal sweat in it. You're obsessed. So think about like you're CEO of a public company or you have founded a company, the amount of blood, sweat, and tears that you've put into it and all the, all the kids sporting events that you've, you've missed and all the times that you worked through a vacation all of that. And, it, and then you get lucky. So I, I went to lunch yesterday with one of our clients that has had two incredibly successful businesses that he's sold for a lot of money. And I reminded him at lunch that after each exit, I said, to what do you attribute your success? And he said, I surrounded myself with really talented people and didn't get in their way. And then I was very lucky, right? So, and that's pretty consistent to what I hear when I ask our clients that, that exit for a lot of money. But that's very different than preserving wealth. And by preserving, I don't mean not growing. Like if you if you have a diversified portfolio that grows at 7.2% a year, you double every 10 years. So you can turn great wealth into much greater wealth. But it's it's really hard to say, I'm going to start with 50 or $100,000 and have $100 million. It's just not going to happen preserving great wealth. But once you have it to smartly grow it and preserve it, you do the, the opposite. So instead of being concentrated and high risk, you're more diversified, you reduce the risk. Instead of being active and obsessed in your business, you're a passive investor, meaning that you invest in other people's companies. And while luck still plays a big role, you add in process that helps reduce the effects of luck over the long term of your, your investments. And again, it's a lot more boring. So what we do with our clients when they've made this great wealth is we talk about how much should you have in each bucket? Do you want to catch lightning in a bottle again? But once you have all this, maybe it shouldn't be 100% or maybe even 50%. Maybe it's like more like 20% that you put it, reinvest in this other bucket where you're, you want to make great wealth again. And for most of our clients that decide to do it again, it's, it's really because it's who they are. They're entrepreneurs, right? They love doing it. It's not that they need any more money. It's just, it's, it's in their DNA. Yeah. I think the biggest misconception people have, I've had the fortune to interact with a couple of ultra high net worth individuals or families in that 500 million plus range. And when you talked about their story, most people focus on like third chapter of the hero's journey. Oh, they had this great success. Like they're doing these cool things. They got the plane. But like the first chapter of how they started the company maybe is also part of it. Oh, they rags to riches. They had this great idea. But the second chapter, like the struggle, the yeah. abyss, I don't think people appreciate, and you spell it out really well in the book, 
like the massive concentration risk and leverage often that they take on yeah. is beyond the risk tolerance of like 99% of the human population, in my opinion. It, it really is. And again, just to, to talk about David Rubenstein's excellent book, as he's interviewing Mark Andreessen, who was one of the most successful venture capitalists of all time. And he, he said, how do you know when you've made an investment and whether to pull the plug? Like, how do you know if it's failed? And he said, that's really hard because every single successful investment we've had, especially the great ones, there was a period of time where we thought it wasn't going to work out. So it just really just really shows how hard it is. And we can all focus on, hey, let's look at Square, now, now called Block, how great they've been or Netflix or whatever, PayPal. But we ignore the fact, to your point, that every single one of these companies probably almost failed. Yeah. And, and I don't know what the exact number is, but directionally, it's like 12% plus of the S&P churns every year. So yeah. I mean, these companies that were great, like they come and go. I mean, General Electric is now, it is what it is. But when I was a kid, that was the stalwart, right? I mean, totally. Things change and it's, it's very hard to maintain that level of success over the long term. Yeah. And once you get really big, it's harder and harder to grow. I mean, it's easier if you want to grow a, a billion dollars of revenue at 10%, that's a uh, hundred million. And if, if you're at $10 billion revenue, it's, it's growing up a billion a year. So yeah, that's, it, it becomes harder and harder to grow the bigger you get. So it's so, incredible that some companies like Apple have, have done that. It's just mind boggling. Yeah. I mean, it's as big as they are. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to fathom. You've got this great part at the end, and I don't want to go through them verbatim, but these eight investment behavior, best practices, We've called out some of them. Are there any that you want to highlight? I mean, I suggest people go check them all out. But there, are there a handful that you really want to kind of bring to the fore that you found to be very impactful for you and your clients? Yeah, I think I think one of them. And years ago, when I started researching this area, it was really eye opening. And it's it's that using in, in areas where there's uncertainty and it's hard to predict, using what's known as algorithms to help you make decisions works better than just unstructured judgment. So I, I call it use simple algorithm. So let, let me give a, let me give an example. This is one of my favorites. So back in the late 1970s, this psychologist who is a uh, kind of pioneer on looking at human decision-making named Robin Dawes, he's since passed away, but he was asked by one of his friends who was a medical doctor, like, how can you tell when somebody has a good marriage or not? Right. And he was like, oh, that's really interesting. As a psychologist, I've done some work with couples, whatever. So he went and looked at studies and he found like there really weren't any good studies. So what he decided to do is he took a bunch of graduate students that were married or in committed relationships. And he said, I want you to keep journals for a year, each of you, of everything that happens as much as you can during the day. And they gave them all these periodic surveys of, of how they were, were doing as a couple. And then when they got all these journals, they, they went through and they're like, we're going to try to figure out what is the secret? How can we tell if a relationship's healthy? And what they found is a very simple algorithm that does a lot better than just judgment of even the most grizzled marriage counselor. And it's you take the number of acts of lovemaking, let's say in a month, and you subtract the number of quarrels. And if the number was positive, they had a good relationship. And if it was negative, it wasn't. And it's just bam. And this study has been reproduced numerous times, and they keep finding that. So that's a great example of this. And it, it happens all the time. And in medicine, if you take an ER doctor and you just say somebody having a heart attack, they found they would overweight factors that weren't relevant right then. But if they gave them a simple 
chart a, a decision tree. It was much better and in all sorts of areas of life. And this happens in investing too. And you, you mentioned rebalancing. And really what we do with clients and what has been shown to work the best in terms of our own behavior is to have these algorithms, have these guardrails. So again, if you're 75% in growth equities and 25% in bonds, if you look at it once a year and if your 75 has gone to 80, you trim it back to 75. If your 75 has gone down to 70, you sell some bonds, you add. Just right there helps your behavior. It forces you to sell high and buy low. So we think that's a great way to go. And again, this is boring. I mean, sometimes people will be like, oh, what about your ideas on tactical shifts? Aren't you going to underweight me or overweight me and this, that, or the other? But it's ignoring the fact that the stock market is not the economy. All these economic indicators aren't going to tell you how these, these areas of the stock market are going to do with enough precision that you're going to make money off of it. And what I find is a lot of firms, and, and we oversee $15 billion for our clients, but a few billions at other institutions. So we're their family office. It would be like, I have a relationship with XYZ brokerage firm. I want to keep it there. We're like, great, whatever. So we download every night from over 70 broker dealers that, or banks. And we get to see not just what they say they do, but what they do. And I'll tell you, my, I'll summarize it. First of all, there is no secret sauce. The more active they are, the more complex they are. It tends to be the worst they do, especially after fees and, and taxes. And when they're doing these tactical shifts, it's usually just 1% or 2% here, 1% or 2% there, which is really just marketing. I mean, they're just really saying, we want to prove our value. Let's up your emerging markets allocation from 5 to 6% or whatever. I mean, it's really, it's, they're really not going to be saying, okay, we're going to go all in. I mean, that, that just doesn't happen because they know if they do that, they will get fired because they're going to be wrong more than they're right. Well, John, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. The book is terrific. If people are interested in connecting with you to learn about the firm or the book, what's the best way for them to, to learn more? Yeah. Well, the book's on Amazon, so that's, that's easy. Amazon's everywhere. But I have a website, John M as in Michael Jennings.com, no periods, John M Jennings.com. So there's more about me, more about the book, and importantly, my blog, The Interesting Fact of the Day. So up in the right hand corner is a it says the iFod. And love to have subscribers to my blog. It's all sorts of just different random things. It it almost never has anything to do with in, investing. And yeah, I would love to have new subscribers. Yeah, the blog is great. I, I found that the fitness is is true. And really insightful. So thank you again for joining us. Best of luck with the book. For our listeners, please do leave us a review. Let us know that your favorite part of the conversation. John, a final question. Actually, I've got two speed round. Sure. One, will the Blues make the playoffs next year? No. <laughs> full, full blown rebuild, rebuild mode. Yeah, I think, I think probably. I mean, I'd, I, I don't think we're coming from all the way down in the dumps like, like a Chicago or Anaheim or Arizona is, but. Yeah, we definitely have some retooling and NHL is competitive. But then again, if you asked me this time last year, I would have said yes. And then they didn't. So what do I know? Right. I mean, I think that goes to our conversation earlier. If you had said that, what was it, the, the 2019 team that was dead last in January? Went on won the so Cup. Yeah, yeah. You never. That was an amazing year to be a Blues fan, especially I feel so bad for Boston. I mean, to have the best record in the NHL in history and then exit in the first round. Wow, I really feel for them. And they have great fans and I feel for them. After living in Boston, I don't feel bad for them at all. <laughs> but, but yeah, and then the final question we ask everybody that comes on the show, do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? I meditate, but not as regularly as I should. I'll get on these kicks where I do it for every day for three weeks. And 
then, then I won't do it for a week. But I find meditation has a huge impact on my life. Thank you for sharing. And thank you again for coming out. It was terrific. Best yeah. of luck with the book. And I hope to see you in YPO land, if not in person yes. soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.